Today on the podcast, I talk to Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy. We talk about behavioural science. We talk about what marketing can teach HR. We talk about the British agricultural revolution, working from a beach in Southeast Asia. Are Gen Z really that different to us? All those kinds of things and more. Some great book references. It's a conversation that goes everywhere and anywhere. And he's a fascinating guest and a great raconteur. Sit down, get yourself a drink. Enjoy the next 20 minutes with Rory Sutherland. This is Unleashcast. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to Unleashcast today, um, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, Rory Sutherland. Rory, thanks so much for your time today. I'd like to talk about behavioural science based off a conversation, another conversation that you had fairly recently, actually, on Matt Alder's podcast, Recruiting Future. Re- behavioural science is, is a specialism of yours, I, I uh, I believe yes, yeah. Um, it's a it's a long time passion. Even before I knew it was called behavioural science, I worked in direct marketing, and very rapidly it became clear that uh, the way humans behave, think, decide, and act in practice diverges quite dramatically from uh, how they're supposed to think and decide in theory, and that difference is vitally important to all kinds of problems. There was a line from that podcast that I listened to where you said that. Productivity is a mixture of solitude and sociability. I'm wondering how the move towards possible full-time remote work or hybrid work, how is that going to be, how is, say, company or organisational productivity going to be affected by this change, in your opinion? Right. Potentially, and it will take time, it can lead to a significant improvement in productivity. And for the full effects, which may take time to actually play out, and I'll explain why in a moment, um, I'd refer you to a very, very good um, article by the economist Noah Smith on what he calls distributed service sector productivity, um, in which he predicts that over the next five to 10 years, we could see what he calls a Zoom boom. Now, just to be clear about that, okay, Uh, I don't think um, this is all about remote working or all about hybrid working, um, uh, nor is it all about getting people back in the office. It's complicated. Okay. Now, in the 19th century, there was something called the British Agricultural Revolution. And the British Agricultural Revolution wasn't about the optimization of any one thing. It wasn't telling people what crop to grow. Where it was an extraordinary revolution was in it through experimentation it discovered better forms of crop rotation i can't remember the details i think turnips played a particularly significant role because it was discovered that if you grew turnips instead of leaving the land fallow for a year not only did you get a crop out of it but it significantly improved the quality of the soil as well and i think this is interesting because one thing that really annoys me is when people say face-to-face meetings are better than zoom meetings which in most cases they probably are if judged in isolation therefore we should always try to meet face-to-face and my argument is no this is absolutely the wrong way to look at it uh, it isn't a question of one being better than the other the best result will be come from using both in combination so it's completely wrong for example to proselytize face-to-face meetings without remembering that there's a considerable opportunity cost to demanding that decisions have to be made by co-locating people. Because there's a financial cost to doing that in many cases, and there's also a time cost. It takes time to get everybody in the same place. 
therefore, it's a very false dichotomy, I think, to say either or, or is this better than the other? Because it's worth noting, for example, that I'll give you an example of this. If I want to attend a, a two hour meeting in Southeast Asia, okay, uh, if I do it physically, that's a week out of my life. Okay, if I do it virtually, that's two hours out of my working life. And by the way, it doesn't even prevent me going on holiday that week because I could just come in from the beach, talk to Southeast Asia, walk back onto the beach again. Okay, there's a completely different order of complexity, cost and general um, friction that is undoubtedly imposed on business if you require face-to-face -face synchrony uh, in making decisions and in discussing problems or coming up with ideas. So this is like crop rotation. It isn't whether wheat is better than turnips, okay? It's what combination of wheat and turnips will actually provide the best result. Yes, I think it's better to have a Zoom meeting with someone you physically met once in the past. Equally, it's probably better physically meeting someone if you've previously met them on Zoom, okay? The idea, however, that you can generalize or create kind of hard and fast rules like the laws of physics about this, very, very dangerous. The crop rotation British agricultural revolution basically happened through a lot of experimentation and it recognized that um, what worked in one place didn't necessarily work in another. So this is not a question where you can generalize and the people who do so are getting it wrong. In the same way, I mean, it's fairly obvious, I think, through observation, two things. You sometimes get markets or behaviors which are kind of bifurcated. And if you think about it, there was a yawning gap between the phone call and the email and the face to face meeting. You know, it's a bit like a world in which you had buses and limousines, but you didn't have the tube. OK. And I think it was obvious to me even before the pandemic that video conferencing was significantly underused. I didn't say it should have been used all the time, but it was obvious that what the correct ratio was, was not 100 naught. And I experimented with my team working from home on Fridays, for example, because I thought at the very least 20% of time on video had to be an improvement. So that's a really important point. It's also worth noting, I would argue, that there are faults with the office which is this is the opposite. This isn't the case where the solutions are bifurcated. This is where everything is clustered in the middle and there's too little variety. And my argument about solitude and sociability is that the open plan office doesn't provide either of the two conditions which are often essential to meaningful and productive work, which is either a very high degree of sociability, which is you know, at the extreme a pub, okay? Nor does it provide you with solitude which is what you often need to perform different kinds of work. David Ogilvy, famously the founder of my company, never wrote anything in the office. He couldn't, there were just too many distractions. Some people can, a lot of people can't. And the open plan office, it's also worth noting, is a deeply flawed conception in many, many ways. I'm gonna come on to behavioral, the core elements of behavioral science in a moment and talk about nudge stock, which um, I've just signed yeah. up for, by the way. But well, before we do, to talk a bit more about the direct marketing side of things, one thing that I've been hearing more and more in, in various different contexts, in events, on social media, uh, things like that, is, is the way that HR can learn from marketing and the way that it communicates with the rest of the business. And I think that, that the HR function kind of, can kind of adopt uh, marketing strategies and, and uh, philosophies in the way that it can communicate better and more openly and, and more effectively with the business. What do you think about that? 
Well, I mean, certainly what marketing teaches you is you can say the same thing in two different ways and get a completely different emotional response. Um, what you call things has an enormous effect on how we perceive things. Uh, what you compare something to, our perception, if you like, as humans is highly comparative. And also, I would, I would argue that one model, which I think applies as much to HR and your employer brand as it does to your consumer brand, is a model by the neuroscientist David Rock, who's a New Zealander currently based in New York, who calls it the SCARF model. And SCARF stands for five things that humans care deeply about and get very, very emotional about, but which are not generally included in most models of um, uh, employment economics or labor economics, and which aren't also very well captured by market research. If you want to know what SCARF stands for, it's status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And I can't think of a single one of those five which doesn't loom large in the consideration of HR and employee relations every single day. Status is something, um, and perceived status, certainty of employment, of course, is valued to a great extent alongside mere remuneration. Okay, other findings from behavioural science which are important, I think, are that actually uh, making work and remuneration too nakedly transactional uh, actually reduces motivation. So a lot of standard economic theory around incentives is probably wrong. It makes perfect sense. You know, if you do this, we will pay you more. Uh, in certain cases, in, in actually surprisingly many cases, people don't do a great job and don't like the thought that they're doing a great job to, to make money. They like the thought that they're doing a fantastic job as part of their own identity and self-worth. And the use of financial incentives can bizarrely actually erode social incentives. And so that's a very important understanding for HR as well. Um, I, uh, one of the things I would argue is that uh, we often talk about Gen Z and we go, ooh, Gen Z, they never stick around. You know, they're very fussy. You know, if the work doesn't interest them, they're off in a minute. Well, yes, and maybe Gen Z in some respects are, you know, materially and psychologically different from their predecessors. But equally, it's worth noting that companies have increasingly made the relationship with their employees highly transactional. Uh, people are disposed of just in order to meet a quarterly financial target. There isn't much sense of employer loyalty or commitment towards all but a very few employees. And therefore, is it all that surprising that Gen Z might have noticed this and therefore adapted their behaviour accordingly? Doesn't seem surprising to me at all. So, you know, it's worth noting when I first joined Ogilvy in the 1980s, you know, I was paid eight and a half thousand pounds a year, but the company would send me on training courses, which probably cost a couple of thousand pounds. OK, now at the time, to be absolutely frank, I probably would have rather had the money, but it sent a very powerful signal that we are investing in you and see you as a long term part of the company. If you erode that and if you erode the longer term forms of uh, reward and remuneration, which reinforce that feeling, you will fundamentally change the relationship that the employee has with the employer. It goes from being one which is relational, that's the R of SCARF, don't forget, to one that is just transactional and perfunctory. And you won't get the same value out of someone 
uh, if you generally treat them under those terms, or they will deliver only to the extent to which their remuneration requires it, rather than actually delivering extra magic in ways that you hadn't even predicted or imagined. So a lot of labour economics has to be treated very, very sceptically. It possibly appeals to people like finance because people like finance genuinely do think that way. Most people don't. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Gen Z sort of touching on the kind of the, the various tropes of um, people born between whatever it is, 1980, 1996. I'm technically Generation X. Uh, yes, I was going to say. In, you know, I haven't. I have a complicated relationship with these with these kind of signifiers and markers. I think I, I, I'm skeptical, by the way, highly. Mm, yeah, I mean, there, there are traits that you can apply to people of certain ages, but giving them boundaries, I guess, is the idea that if you're younger, that you're more likely to do something. You're you're, you're predisposed to behave in a certain way more so than if you're older. Do you, do you think that older people have a completely different <coughs> set of values, or? Well, by dint of being older, obviously, you know, much of our behaviour changes uh, with age experience. We become slightly less experimental. We know what we like more uh, to an extent. And that that's that's an eternal truth. OK, but the extent to which generations suddenly spring up genetically different, you know, where let's face it, you know, human evolved psychology doesn't change that much from one century to the next. Obviously, the circumstances change and people react differently to differing circumstances. Uh, you know, the gig economy didn't really exist 40 or 50 years ago for many people. There were some trades that practiced it. But I mean, obviously, people will react differently when they see different mechanisms of reward and incentive and so on. But this idea that the generation are fundamentally different in their motivations strikes me as pretty unsafe. If you want the best book on it, uh, Bobby Duffy has written a book called Generations. And there are differences, but they're not generally as clear cut or as compartmentalized as the kind of futurologists like to say. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. We'll, we'll put that in the, in the, the podcast yeah. notes. I've got one final question, and it's more about uh, behavioral science as a whole. So I think I've probably first heard the idea of behavioural science and, and nudging when uh, the Conservative government came in in 2010 and they had a nudge unit, which was about kind of influencing communications with the public in kind of subtler ways. I think I've got that sort of yes, right. No, no, I mean, that's fair. I, I, you could go even further and say that a badly designed government scheme in terms of just the what you might call the choice architecture, the the descriptive language, uh, the path dependency of engagement, etc. You can have the best scheme in the world, but if you design the user interface badly, it gets nowhere. <laughs> and so it isn't just about nudging, actually. It's also about the removal of what you might call psychological friction. Right. Um... Any, any HR person will know about psychological friction when it comes to things like filling in timesheets, okay? Yes, people are very bad at it, but yes, it's also fair to say that um, not much work has gone into making the actual mechanism and performance of it uh, automatic, habitual, easy, attractive, social, and timely. Fair comment. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, so 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 from twenty ten, just as uh, in terms of my experience, twelve years later, we we have nudge stock, so it's clearly a discipline which has grown and been popularized and diversified as well so 
I just signed up to it this morning. A friend of mine actually works for Ogilvy. He's he's a, one of the creative directors in, um, let me get his actual job title. I, I, I messaged him this morning, creative director, digital and social, I think for Ogilvy. And he was telling me about Nudge Stocks. So I was like, okay, I'll sign up. Sounds really interesting. So just tell us a bit about um, the, the genesis so, so- of it and what you can learn. The genesis, I mean, very similar to your business, the, um, uh, the, it was a physical festival which started in London, migrated to the seaside in Deal for two years, then went to sort, sort out larger premises in Folkestone, then was hit by the pandemic, went online only in a kind of uh, 12-hour global behavioural science fest, and we ended up with audiences in kind of high five and six figures. I mean, literally 100,000 people, that's sort of stadium event. Okay, that's the Melbourne cricket ground. And we pretty rapidly realized that the scale of interest in behavioral science was both more geographically widespread and actually much more numerous in terms of the uh, fan base than we'd ever realized. And so it continues on the 10th of June this year as an online festival uh, where we interview the latest practitioners both in academia but also in business in how they're deploying behavioral science to greatest effect as a great information sharing exercise. And we find this just immensely valuable. It's it's actually very, very necessary because actually, you know, one group of people who could learn a lot from marketers as well as HR would be academics. And they're very, very good at actually um, promulgating their findings to a small group of other academics uh, in absolutely closely related fields. But these findings aren't like that. They're actually findings of very, very wide practical application. And so they need a proportionately large audience as a result. So as a final, as an additional final question, actually, how can, how can HR leaders embed these techniques then? Um, what can they do to, to add kind of behavioral science insights and techniques to uh, the way that they deal with their people? The first thing is, and this is the awkward part, that when you admit psychological solutions alongside economic solutions, you make the solution set larger. And that's the great contribution to of behavioral science. It increases the possible range of solutions and the possible combination of interventions that can be used effectively. Now, the downside of that, of course, is people in some ways rather like economics because it only provides you with one answer to any question, which is bribe people or fine people. And people in an institutional setting often like a narrow set of solutions because then you can't be blamed for following them. What we would argue is that behavioral science is only really effective if you combine it with genuine creativity, experimentation and imagination. And so one of the things we would argue is consider more possible solutions when uh, an issue comes along, spend longer perhaps mulling over the possible solutions in that what we have in business now is we're often very, very rigorous about enacting solutions, but we're not very rigorous about defining them in the first place as broadly as possible. And so the trick here is to go upstream and to actually uh, imagine and admit the possibility of counterintuitive or seemingly trivial or seemingly irrational solutions to problems which normally you would solve in some rudimentary economic way. Again, that's difficult. It, it, it does take time, it takes creativity, and it does require you to engage in a certain level of comfortable uncertainty. 
an, an awful lot of institutional behavior, um, I think militates very strongly against that. But the fact is that if you want to use behavioral science, it's necessary. But the other thing that's important is that generally we tend to look for solutions that are kind of commensurate with the budget devoted to their uh, their solving. And one of the other gifts of behavioral science is that sometimes you can solve behave big, big behavioral problems in surprisingly small ways. You know, if it's the timesheet problem, pre-populating the field with job numbers, okay, uh, would probably do 70% of the heavy lifting. Whereas, you know, threatening not to pay people or to withhold their expenses, uh, in theory, uh, would be more effective, but actually, and it may indeed be more effective, but at the price of creating an enormous amount of annoyance and resentment. Absolutely. Well, Rory, thanks so much for your time. It's been... That's a huge pleasure. Yeah, really fascinating. And um, good luck with the event. And I'll be... Uh, I'll... See you at nudgestock.co.uk, 10th of June. Absolutely yeah, see fantastic. you there. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.